Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And wow, do we have a treasure to share with you today. Uh, today, we are bringing you an interview that we just conducted uh, just, just minutes before recording this with uh, with film director Werner Herzog and his collaborator, the volcanologist Clive Oppenheimer. And this was so powerful. That's right. They have a new documentary, Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, and it debuts November 13th, 2020, only on Apple TV+. It's an Apple original film. You know, in the past few days, I've just been mainlining Herzog documentaries, uh, all three uh, actually involving Clive Oppenheimer. So the first one was uh, his, I think it was 2007 film, Encounters at the End of the World, that's all about... uh, people in Antarctica and how they ended up there, what they're doing there. And one of them is this volcano researcher named Clive Oppenheimer, uh, who's studying Mount Erebus. And this started a partnership between Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer. So they've worked together on a couple of films since then. One was a fantastic documentary about volcanoes called Into the Inferno. And now this new one called Fireball, which is all about space impacts and meteorites. That's right. Uh, Yeah, this one is uh, directed by Herzog and Oppenheimer, and it's written and narrated by Herzog. These are both tremendous documentaries. Uh, I I feel like they're very much the sort of documentaries that Stuff to Blow Your Mind listeners would enjoy because they are obsessed uh, with with not only science, but human culture and where where the two meet, how how our understanding or, or interpretations of, of of cosmic or geologic events uh, impact uh, the formation and the continuation of culture. I feel like we shouldn't delay any longer. Should we go right to the interview? Let's do it. Let's jump right in. Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer, welcome to the program. Thank you. We both watched uh, this documentary along with your previous collaboration, Into the Inferno, and we love them both. Both fabulous explorations of science and culture. Where did the idea for Fireball come from, and when did you film it? Well, it came from Clive, but he has to explain. (laughs) Yeah, so about a year after the release of Into the Inferno, I, I had been working through uh, one or two concepts for another film, but it was actually by chance on a trip to South Korea, I visited the Korean Polar Research Institute and they gave me a tour of, of the facility and I saw their, their meteorite collection. They go every, every year down to Antarctica and hunt for meteorites uh, they've got a thousand already, but they're hoping I'll find something new. Uh, and it was while speaking with the meteorite expert there and, and just looking at the, the, these wonderful stones that have fallen from, from space, uh, that it just seemed that this was a, a, another very obvious, um, ostensibly a geoscience topic, but one that immediately uh, touches on, on human culture uh, on on our origins, uh, origins of life, um, human origins. Thinking about the the, the large, uh, the massive impact sixty five million years ago that uh, reset the biological clock on Earth. Three quarters of species went to the wall. Um, it speaks to our destiny. And there was something also about the the scientific veneration of these stones. Uh, each each was in a a. a cubicle like a microwave oven with a window but in, in a nitrogen atmosphere to preserve them and they were all in another must have been the, the feeling like in a catholic church the relics of saints yes uh, in, uh, behind glass and uh, preserved somehow and untouchable that's right you know they were a real veneration and uh it it was an echo for me of the the veneration of one of the holiest relics of islam the, the black stone which is also thought uh probably to be meteoritic so that that um really inspired me and i back home i i put together uh, uh some ideas of of how how these themes might fit together and i gave Werner a call that was the start of it production we we were filming last year we started filming in um first of august i think last year and uh, through to christmas eve uh, we were editing 
Um, we finished editing in January, so we were very, very fortunate uh, to to do the the, the real um, work that involved a lot of travel before all the lockdowns uh, were in place. Uh, and so the post production was done in Europe and LA, uh, but this was possible despite the lockdowns. It's funny that you mentioned the idea of uh, comparing the meteorites in their cases to the the saints and the relics, because uh, of course the nitrogen that they keep them in there, it's basically to make them incorruptible, right? Yeah, that, that's right. And you know, particularly the the meteorites, the so-called carbonaceous meteorites, carbonaceous chondrites that have an extraordinary complement of organic molecules, uh, things like ribose, a sugar, um, amino acids, the building blocks of life. These are completely abiotic, uh, and yet, uh, um, I mean, to me, this—you know—even as a as a geoscientist, I, I I hadn't really taken on board just the complexity and um, abundance of organic molecules in certain meteorites, and so I find it very credible the idea that, that these have delivered um, the the building blocks, the ingredients of life, uh, not only in our solar system but elsewhere, and. and you know, maybe all it takes is for uh, one of them to find the right environment uh, with with um, the right kind of temperatures or heating and cooling cycles, wetting and drying cycles, in order to start to to build very uh, simple living organisms. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is actually when you're sniffing one of these meteorites. Uh, and so I was wondering what that smells like. I'd actually read in other places that some meteorites smell like cruciferous vegetables, like rotting cabbage or like Brussels sprouts. Uh, I think in the film you might have compared it to mothballs. Is that right? Yeah, mothballs. It, it, it had a, a very pungent smell. I mean, you remember that these are molecules that are four and a half billion years old. Uh, and this was something again. I, I had no idea of you know that you could sniff a meteorite and, and get such a strong smell off it. Um, contents of a vacuum cleaner bag is a, is another another way of maybe uh, <laughs> capturing what it's like. It's it's quite hard to describe, but unmistakable that that there is uh, an odor to these stones. And they've even used um, dogs sometimes to help find them because they they can sniff them out. Clive, it's funny because I really wanted to take a, a sniff of it as well, with, uh, but I, I uh, restrained myself because I, I had the feeling I would breathe on it and, and there would be vapor uh, on it, or maybe my nose would be dripping on it. And what a catastrophe that would mean to wipe out uh, the scent of uh, 4,500 million years back in time. So I didn't do it. I have to rely on you to report what it was. It would have been an interesting scientific paper and a fairly humiliating retraction later when they realized that it was the snot <laughs> that had dribbled out of your nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> well, that reminds me of one of my favorite details uh, leading up to that scene. Uh, Werner, I thought it was interesting how when you're going into the lab where some of these meteorites are stored under these tight containment procedures to keep them safe from contamination and, and degradation, there's a moment where you focus on the sticky mat that everyone has yeah. to walk through uh, to go into the room. And that seemed like a detail that was very characteristic of your eye for documentaries to me. You noticing these uh, interesting uh, peripheral or process details that often wouldn't become the subject matter of another documentary. Why do you think you notice things like that so often? Well, you would never see it on uh, in a film f uh, by National Geographic or PBS or HBO. You don't see that. Uh, and I loved it. And not only that it was sticky and this, this crazy, I think, greenish color, when you rip it off, the kind of ripping sound it makes. And I love yes. the sound and I had repeated it a few times because I wanted to have the sound recorded very well. So uh, those are things, of course, that point out you are entering a very specific, a very special sphere. There's something special. You do not walk in with your, uh, with your shoes that you wore out in the street. They have to be cleansed. And you enter with a certain preparation. The camera enters prepared. 
uh, and the audience enters prepared. So you always have to anticipate uh, an audience behind you. Uh, and of course, it means you're never going to be boring. You never will be didactic. There has to be human. It has to be uh, awesome. Uh, and of course, there's a separate second story within the audience that you have to prepare the curiosity of the audience, the engagement of the audience. And those are the moments where you, where you really capture them, where you really uh, walk with them into, into this connection. That sort of leads into the next thing I wanted to ask, which is I, I was wondering about when you're looking at something awe-inspiring, say you're standing in a colossal impact crater or you're looking at the exposed magma and the caldera of a volcano, how do you think your experience is colored by the fact that you are there to document it, whether that's for science, Clive, or for film, Werner, uh, as opposed to just being there and witnessing it with no real documentary mission? Well, for me, there is no distinction. I do my job and I, I enjoy the moment. And I uh, somehow, uh, of course, in some cases, uh, there's some danger when you are getting too close to uh, a, a crater, an active crater that is spitting out uh, uh, particles in magma and uh, slabs large as a truck. And they come down, so you, you better watch out what you are doing. So, but I, it's uh, it's where life in filmmaking uh, has no distinction. I think for me, I I do sense some distinction. I mean, particularly in my scientific work on volcanoes, uh, and I think it, it's actually true as well of the filmmaking. The when you're making a film, or when I'm trying to measure the gas coming out of a volcano. Uh, you have to think about an awful lot of things all at the same time. Uh, you have to be flexible. If you're trying to make uh, gas measurements on a volcano, you need to worry all the time, which way is the wind blowing? What's the volcano doing? Is it safe to be here? Uh, why isn't the equipment working? And, uh, you know, in some ways, this this is so absorbing that actually, you, you know, you're not having a transcendental moment about where you are. And it's maybe when when everything is working just great, and the data is being collected, and you can just set aside, and then and then stop and think. Well, my goodness, look where I am. I'm I'm on the side of a an active volcano crater in in, in Antarctica, and it's minus forty degrees Celsius. Uh, and then you you know then you're really aware of where you are and what it feels like to be there. And Clive, there's also a, a certain for me is filmmaking. Uh, you become more fearless because you're doing your job. And um, that has cost, for example, war correspondence during the Vietnam War. The amount of casualties and fatalities you had among the war photographers was uh, staggeringly high because they step into the crossfire and they take photos of one side and photos of the other side firing at each other and they are right in the middle of it. And, and then they perish and uh, a camera gives you this kind of quasi uh, feeling of invulnerability. And having Clive around, for example, in Indonesia, where we were filming a, a volcano that had come back to life, uh, Clive insisted we have to turn the car around so that we can flee. And you can't turn the car around on a... No, no, on a ditch, country ditch road or so, which is not much wider than the car. So we had to go one mile further down and turn it around and then come back. And Clive made sure that the car has to face uh, an exit. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, uh, we are seeing something and the camera films it in an eruption. And Clive says to us, uh, uh, stop the camera, load it now, and we flee. And and we actually fled. And uh, seven days later, I think 11 peasants who were doing farm work exactly at that same spot perished in a similar eruption. Now, now this is interesting. You, you know, in thinking about not only the the craft of creating the documentary, but the experience of creating the documentary, uh, I was curious. You know, obviously, you're going into it with with certain ideas in mind, uh, and then there's the shoot itself, and then I imagine some reflection afterwards. 
Um, uh, what is the what is the experience? It's just a curious individual like of of going on this journey. Um, it, do you find yourself coming out at the other end with like a different idea or a different consideration of say near Earth objects or meteorites? No, we are always ready for surprises, uh, and Clive is wonderful in uh, doing conversations spontaneous conversations. Of course, he's extremely well prepared. When we filmed with the lay uh, brother uh, in the Vatican, a Jesuit, uh, he, Clive, had read the doctoral uh, dissertation of that man, which was uh, written in 1979. And he quotes from this. So who, for heaven's sake, is prepared like, like him? That's one side. But the conversation can go anywhere. And of course, uh, all of a sudden he asks him uh, if uh, green men would come out uh, from a spacecraft, would you baptize them? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, the Jesuit said yes, <laughs> only, but only if they asked for it. <laughs> so the conversation has to go its own course. And um, but but you do not walk away having done that film and you're a changed man. You see, that's uh, that's a postulate of the silly Hollywood uh, screenplays. Uh, a person <laughs> by page 30 has to know his, uh, his task and by page six, 60, he or she has to undergo the crisis and by the end of the film, he or she has to exit the film as a changed person. Not so for us. We, we, we are we, I, I always quote the Bavarian proverbial saying, we are we and we spell us, us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, I would never allow Clive to have a piece of paper in his hand. I said, we are not journalists. We do not have a catalog of questions. Let let the thing roll and let's tumble through it. <laughs> so there's a moment in Fireball I wanted to talk about where, uh, Clive, where you are looking at micrometeorites under an extremely powerful microscope under magnification. And you notice that the surfaces of the dust grains that come down from space look in some ways like the surfaces of moons or rocky planets. And this is something I've read about in uh, the geological world as well as in the biological sciences, geometrical patterns and textures that can be found repeating at vastly different levels of resolution. Um, do, do you have thoughts about this, Clive? Like, why does the microscopic so often mirror the astronomical? It's a good question. I, I, I hadn't thought of that, but uh, I mean, so the, these are cosmic dust micrometeorites that, that were found by uh, one of Norway's most famous jazz musicians, a wonderful guitarist, Jon Larsen, and he spent the last 10 years up on the, the roofs of sports arenas and, and in um, car parks, uh, uh, trawling, collecting all the sludge of, of the, the urban, uh, but finding in it, um, and he's found several thousand meteoritic grains now. And uh, these un under high magnification, magnification they look absolutely wonderful uh, and you, you know you would love to have one uh, at, at a large size uh, sitting in your living room that's so beautiful to behold but to, to answer your question I mean I, I wonder if um, one of the reasons why it struck me that this one of these particular grains it, it, it seemed to have um, uh, fractures in it that looked like um, almost like icebergs that had very kind of polygonal uh, cracks and fissures between them. And then and there was something that looked like it could be a coastline that they'd broken off from. Um, and it may be that uh, some of the processes are, are the same, just at very different scales. Uh, and I'm thinking of things like uh, fluid dynamics. Um, fluid dynamics, uh, there are guiding principles, um, the, the force of gravity, the, the the fluidity of something, how viscous, how sticky it is when, when it's trying to flow. Uh, and, and these processes operate at, at vastly different spatial scales. And so maybe that's why there is some in, inherent similarity that, that we sometimes see. Clive, I think you have it in, in the very abstract as well. And it's a very deep question about 
the nature of the universe. You have it in mathematics, uh, in, in fractals, and in things where all of a sudden certain patterns uh, reappear on a very large scale, and the more minuscule you get, they keep repeating itself. So there seems to be something inherent in nature that uh, we do not understand fully yet. And it's a very beautiful thought to pursue this kind of pattern that manifests itself uh, all of a sudden. And why is it that on a very large scale you have patterns that you find in a microscopic uh, scale, uh, in, in, in almost the same optical impression you have? And, and then we have the the... The exception, the pattern that never repeats itself, the the quasi crystal, with the the forbidden fivefold symmetry, uh, and yet which which can be you know was was discovered by uh, artisans in in Iran, um, tiling tiling the uh, a shrine half a millennium ma- ago. Yes, yes. And not mathematicians like Penrose who describes it uh, mathematically. That that has been one of the most fascinating elements in the film for me at all, because I did not know about quasi-crystals at all. And I have to point out, uh, the earliest supporter of the film was the Simons Foundation, where they have a sandbox film department, which supports films uh, that have scientific background. And uh, they are on a new trajectory now to attract new audiences to non-didactic uh, sort of cinema about science. And the man who runs this, Greg Bostit, who is a scientist himself, he sent me a book uh, uh, written by Paul Steinhardt, a cosmologist who actually was in search of quasi-crystals for more than 30 years. And he's in the film, and, and it's a, he's a wonderful character, shy and uh, never been out in wild nature. I say in my commentary, the uh, deepest contact with the wild nature was the lawns at uh, Princeton University, and all of a sudden he goes on an expedition into easternmost uh, Siberia, close to the Bering Strait, into the underbrush and wild bears around and clouds of mosquitoes, and he finds uh, uh, remnants of... Uh, small fragments of a meteorite that uh, carried uh, quasi-crystals. And it was proven, yes, they exist in nature, out there in the universe. And it had been proven. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. And for me, totally fascinating, because I'm fascinated by mathematical things like that. How is it possible that uh, a structure in crystals that is unthinkable should be even forbidden, and it was forbidden almost to think about it, can be proven uh, after uh, understanding a certain pattern. It's just wonderful, these kind of manifestations. And I'm, I would be, if I didn't make films, I would like to go into mathematics, but you have to start as a child to be really into it. I, yes, because I, I would like to be uh, on the forefront of finding out about Riemann's theory, uh, Riemann's hypothesis about prime numbers, distribution of prime numbers. Those things really, really fascinate me. Well, I, I had wondered if maybe I was reading Faces in Clouds when I saw this connection in your work, but I was thinking even in the earlier movie in Into the Inferno, I thought I saw... Uh, uh, Werner, in, in your eye for the film, this idea of repeating patterns, because I noticed there's the scene where you're searching for shattered fragments of ancient human bone in the East African rift in Ethiopia, and then immediately you cut to the exposed magma surface in the caldera of the nearby volcano, and the cooling surface has cracks in it that look almost exactly like the edges of the bone fragments that, uh, that Clive, you were just picking out with, uh, with I believe it was Tim White of, of Berkeley, the paleoanthropologist. Uh, w- was that on purpose, or, or, or no, am I just I'm, making I'm, crazy connections there? No, I've never been aware of that. You are the first one who points it out. <laughs> to look at it again, of course, it was not fast. It was not uh, um, on purpose to make this connection. But it, you, are, you have the privilege as an audience to make these connections. That did not occur to me. And nor did I think occur to Clive 
No, no, but it's it's a wonderful resonance, and I I can still watch Into the Inferno, which I I have seen a, a good few times now, and and I will make a connection. I will, will see uh, a motif reappearing somewhere that I hadn't I hadn't spotted before, and I think that's uh, for me the joy of making these kinds of films. For me, they're more like a piece of music that you 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 love and would listen to again and again. I feel with with these films and with Werner's films that. Uh, uh, you know, I could watch Aguirre many, many times uh, and never be bored of it. Um, so that's that's part of the joy of this this kind of cinema. I, I would say, um, just you know, on, on the uh, accidental accidental things coming good. Uh, one of my favorite bits of film in Fireball um, is when we're up on the polar plateau and filming the meteorite search with the Koreans. And um, the camera was on for about half an hour without us realizing it. Uh, so it's just being carried around and it's pointing all over the place. But we looked at this footage and there's, there was just one, you know, ten, five, eight seconds worth of just, it was just beautiful. Um, just uh, the shadows, uh, um, our team cast on, on the blue ice. And because there were shadows, it gave a depth uh, into the ice, into this r- extraordinary glacial ice, uh, just beautiful and completely accidental. Uh, so, Werner, y- you've emphasized um, the ways that high-energy natural phenomena like volcanic eruptions and impacts from space can reveal us to be very tiny and insignificant and powerless. But uh, in this documentary and in Into the Inferno, you show a lot of the ways that people are drawn to exactly the sites of these phenomena when they're trying to build a mythology that gives their life meaning, is there a counterintuitive logic at work here? Uh, Does evidence of our insignificance and helplessness somehow kind of give courage to the part of us that finds a way to view our lives as part of a sacred story or having a point? Well, that's a very profound question, and I have never thought about it uh, for a long time. But of course, uh, uh, just looking at the universe when you look at the stars when you're outside outside of a city where you really see the universe uh, uh, and it of course gives you a, an understanding of size and when you're in Antarctica you get an understanding of uh, you can walk straight for the next 5,000 kilometers like walking across the entire continental United States and you will not find a human soul and at the same time, the fact uh, that the day will last for five months until the sun settles, because it's circling in Antarctica during the Austrian summer. So it gives a, a, a scale of of size and importance. And of course, uh, vis-a-vis the universe, uh, which is monumentally indifferent to us, uh, we have to understand uh, the size and yet... Uh, at such moments, uh, we can also understand uh, that the here and now and what we are has a certain importance, and we do the best uh, out of the moment. We we create our our own consciousness to to some degree, and we are responsible for what we are doing, and we are big in what we are doing here. So it's. Um, it's a strange balance, and it sounds like a contradiction, but it is not. I I would add, I, I believe, you know, that we are very much disconnected now. I mean, more than half of us live in in cities, in urban environments, and and artificial light has colonized our night. Uh, and you know, how many of us can remember the last time we saw the Milky Way? And I think that does disconnect us from that sense of awe of of the uh, the natural world of the. Have so you heard some story about uh, the earthquake in the valley? Yes, the, the 1994, the the Northridge earthquake in in LA. Uh, this struck in February, I think, in the middle of the night, and so people ran outside their homes, and pretty soon. A number are calling the emergency services because they could see a, a strange silvery cloud in, in, in the sky uh, and they thought maybe this was some noxious fumes given off from the San Andreas Fault. 
Um, but what had happened, the earthquake had knocked out the power grid. And so for the first time, they were seeing the Milky Way, which, you know, they had no oh. idea what it was. It's, wow. I mean, it's... it's, it's <laughs> People called 90... You can completely understand it. I, I, I mean, I live in a, a village out, outside Cambridge in England, um, but there's way too much light pollution here to see more than a, a dozen stars at night. And um, I think that's I think that's meaningful. Actually, it, it, it has it has an impact on on human society that that we no longer uh, have that sense of wonder of of the infinite and of of the, the nocturnal because we've lost it for so many of us. Every now and then, you hear. Um of, of various actors being described as a force of nature or their performance being a force of nature that must be uh, you know, crafted or, or honed uh, by, by a director. Werner, what do you make of such comparisons, especially having worked with actual volcanoes and, and alongside other legitimate forces of nature in your films? You're not thinking about Klaus Kinski, are you? <laughs> um, well, well, certainly he's, he's an actor that, that comes to mind. Uh, yeah, you, you hear occasionally such performers compared to a force of nature. Yeah, but you hear and, that in, in cheap Hollywood affirmative <laughs> uh, reviews. It's uh, riveting and whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you know what I mean. Uh, yes. So you, you should be careful in, in using this kind of lingo that you hear in uh, uh, advertisements for, uh, for mainstream Hollywood movies being praised by paid-off mainstream reviewers. So anyway, but uh, if you mean somebody like Nicolas Cage in Bad Lieutenant, mm-hmm. or Klaus Kinski in Wojciech, uh, sure, yes, there's something uh, extraordinary about uh, performances and intensity and the presence on screen, uh, which um, is completely unique and remarkable. And you do not find it very often. But you do find it, and you do find it like Timothy Treadwell, Grizzly Man. And in a way, Clive has a presence on camera, which is unique for a a film like that. We only have David Attenborough, but it's prepared texts, well-written texts, but he puts a kind of excitement into it, and and he, he deserves... Uh, being so famous and being so loved by audiences, a wonderful character. But uh, Clive has something um, uh, which I really like uh, as, a, as a strong presence on screen, the sense of awe, the sense of respect, the sense of discovery. And if we have a person like him in a film and we have not, uh, we, we don't pursue this kind of lifeless uh, scientific documentaries uh, and we find a, a, a man like him in front of a camera wonderful. So um, I, I've been very lucky that I ran into Clive on top of an active volcano in Antarctica at 12,500 feet altitude. 30 degrees below zero or something. And he wore a tweed jacket or something. He denies it was a tweed jacket. It wasn't a tweed jacket. <laughs> the Harris Tweed clan will be, will be uh, tracking you down. <laughs> but it, uh, I mean, it, was it, but it looked like a tweed jacket, or like it, the early Himalaya climbers, the early Mount Everest climbers would, would uh, tackle the mountain in, in tweed jackets. Well, it, this was a Himalayan jacket. It was, it was from uh, Kulu Manali in India. Uh, so uh, I, I've, I've never been a huge fan for um, synthetic fibers. So I, I, like, I like to wear wool and cotton and all sorts of things you're not supposed to wear anymore in Antarctica. I, I, don't, wear, I don't use Finisco and uh, you know, the re- what the, the real old timers did. But, but I guess my tweed jacket is pretty close to what Mallory wore. Yeah, we use it as a metaphor now, but you struck, your appearance was striking and the way you talked and what you had to say was just wonderful. So that's where, where we started to uh, notice each other and uh, 
Clive actually, I think on the same or on the following day said, I have a camera myself, can I speak to you? But I would like to record it on my camera. So Clive was into filmmaking already. It, well, it, it was really the first filmmaking I'd done. I was working, collaborating with an Italian photographer and an artist on, on a, a video installation. Uh, so I had... It was I had, for the Biennale in Venice. Was it correct? Ah, well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting... So when we were putting this thing together, uh, so Ar- Armin Linker is the name of the, the artist, uh, and he thought we, we might have a, a showing at the Biennale. Well, you, you can imagine coming out of the ivory tower in Cambridge, how excited I, I was at that prospect. Um, it didn't go to Venice. It went to the um, Festivali Internazionali per Redobagno in Bologna, which, which I'm sure you know uh, is, is the, it's the big global event in toilet furnishings. Uh, if you're into toilet furnishings, <laughs> you're in Bologna for, uh, for the Cersei um, uh, convention. Um, the, the, the installation had been commissioned by a very large ceramics company. They, they were, they'd made a new product called Volcanic Stone. Uh, and so, anyway, this is why I had a camera point, Werner. But the, that trip to, that mission to Antarctica, it, it was, a, would say, very much a turning point for me because I had this camera and I was feeling creative to be behind the camera and not only thinking about measuring volcanic gases. But, of course, it was also my encounter with Werner. Uh, and I'd, I'd been interested in in the idea of making a volcano documentary uh, for a number of years. And my motivation for that was distaste for most volcano documentaries. I mean, coming from uh, knowing something about the topic, I knew uh, watching a lot of these documentaries, they were all identical. Uh, they all had the line of, um, it's, it's a not, a, not, a, not a matter of if she blows, it's when, uh, and then cut into the commercial break. So I, I, I already had a longing to to do more than that because so much of the documentary, there are some good ones, but most, uh, they go for the low hanging fruit. Um, it's doom and gloom and it's not, not the interesting stories. It's not the nuance. It's not the entanglements of, of nature and culture. So I thank my lucky stars that, that I ran into Werner, um, up on this 12, 12 and a half thousand foot high volcano in Antarctica. In both The Fireball and uh, Into the Inferno, you speak with people about their beliefs and their traditions and the things that have, that have impacted those cultures and traditions to, to sort of steer the direction of their, their worldviews. Uh, and in Inferno, you speak with individuals whose faith is, in, is sometimes classified as, as a cargo cult, a belief system born out of contact between Melanesian cultures and the Western military machine of the Second World War. Um, what, what was that experience like to, to actually, you know, to, to be there uh, and, and speak with them and, 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 and see them in person? Well, I'd say I mean, there were a couple of uh, elders that we spoke with in Vanuatu for Into the Inferno. One, as you say, the, was the cargo cult, the John Frum cult. Uh, and I mean, this, this was, it was a very interesting conversation. Um, in that particular case, I think this, this cargo cult actually... Uh, if you look at its roots, it starts very much uh, as a protest against the, the colonial authorities. Um, and th- this is sort of back in the, I guess it's starting around, around the time of the Second World War. And um, uh, people on the island of, of Tanna, uh, they... They'd been in in mission schools. They were just taught what the the British wanted them to know, and they said, "Well, you know, we we want to go back to our traditions. We want to drink again. We want to have our ceremonies." And so, one of the first things they did was to stop uh, buying goods from from the the English uh, shops, and that really upset the colonial authorities. So they they threw these guys in prison, you know, for. 15 years. And, and so that, that's sort of what it, the, the cargo cult's born, born from. The other chap we spoke with, um, for me, one of the most compelling uh, conversations we've ever had on camera was with um, uh, the chief uh, of Endu village on Ambrim Island in the north of the Vanu- Vanuatu archipelago. And he, he uh, 
lives just a few miles from a very active volcano at night. You'll see the glow from the crater. And uh, so it's, it's literally a looming presence and, and ever-present on, on the landscape. And every now and then, ash will fall out across uh, their, their plots of land. Uh, and he described his, his feelings on, on one visit he made to the crater. And, and he said, I, I looked in and I saw this uh, I saw this stuff moving like the sea, you know, so I thought it was water, but it was red. So it can't be water. What, what is it? And the way he describes this uh, makes complete sense. Uh, okay, I've, I've trained in the geoscience, so I, I have a different perspective on it. But I, I, I find it very, very compelling uh, how people formulate uh, cosmologies when they're faced by these... Uh, awesome phenomena. Uh, and I mean that in the sense of in- inspiring reverential fear as well as uh, uh, inspiring awe of, of just the, the, the wonder of seeing, seeing magma at night. Yeah, I would like to add two things because for me it sounds too theoretical when you explain the colonial origins of cargo cults. Yes, sure, we can track it back to that, but still it remains very compelling and mysterious that we speak with people or you speak with people who believe that an American GI, John Frum, lives in Volcano and he, uh, the man with whom you speak, has spent a whole night inside of the cauldron of the volcano. What were you talking about? So uh, the, the, the presence and deification uh, the creation of a god out of a GI, an average GI John Frum, is is fantastic for me, and it had to be in the film. The second, uh, which uh, I remember was very important, we discussed how do you talk to them, the attitude, and you said, I know how to do it, and I trust it, because it shouldn't be condescending, it shouldn't be patronizing, it shouldn't be uh, funny, it shouldn't be... Uh, you see, and, and your quiet curiosity and respect is something is, which which makes a scene unforgetful. So you have to have, when you do something like this, you have to have somebody of your caliber to do it right. And, and this was on our mind uh, throughout all the conversations we had. And it was on our mind when we did uh, conversations with, uh, let's say, a female artists uh, in Western Australia, an Aboriginal uh, woman. Uh, and the way you talk to her and you, the way you are interested to understand her painting and how she explains it has a wonderful tone to it. And you do not see that in movies. You don't see it. But uh, we were able to create it and there's a lot of thinking behind it. And, and a lot of natural decency that's in you is behind it. Werner, I would say in a lot of your movies, it seems one thing you enjoy capturing is a, a palpable sense of unpredictability about what's on camera. And uh, that comes through even in the conversations. I, I would say a lot of the conversations that you capture in these films feel less scripted and less predictable and less worked out in advance than most conversations and documentaries do. Uh, yes, of course, because we trust in our ability to follow the moment and we trust in our ability to go to the essence very quickly. So you see, we, we do not shoot endless hours and hours and hours. We go to Castel Gandolfo and we speak to the Jesuit uh, lay brother. Uh, neither Clive has met him in person, only on the phone, nor have I ever met him. We go in and in, in, two, in, in an hour flat or so we are done filming. And it's wonderful, and and we know we we captured, we captured the essence of what we wanted to do. So uh, we bring skills, we bring certain skills to the set uh, that come to fruition in a very condensed, uh, in a very condensed way. And thanks God, we we have these capabilities because otherwise we would have made a boring didactic film. And, and we must acknowledge too that that we're we're part of a team with with you know wonderful cinematographer Peter Zeitlinger 
who who was DOP for both of these films, and uh, a, a sound engineer recordist, um, Paul Paragon, uh, both uh, you know ex- extraordinary uh, professionals. Uh, the way Peter works with the camera, it, it's it's very uh, he, he's extraordinary. I mean, again, as Vanessa says, we we turn up, we meet people for the first time. And we've maybe had a few conversations on the phone, um, and and we have a very clear sense of purpose of of uh, what what we're after and what what themes we want to dig into. Um, but then the way Peter works with the camera is 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 a marvel to behold. Uh, Paul, our sound recordist, you know, he'll be up at five o'clock in the morning uh, before the birds are up to to record. Uh, a wonderful ambience that that might then be uh, you know woven into our our uh, soundtrack. So it's it's a collective effort with you know all of us knowing knowing what we're doing and and how how this is is going to work work out and fit together. I would say one of my favorite examples in in your recent films that uh, that I've heard of that sound gathering is uh, in. Uh, encounters at the end of the world you have a, a wonderful selection of sort of the commerce of the ice all the inhuman sounds of the chucking made by the seals and the cracking of the ice behind you uh, it, it does give you a sense that there is a world taking place there that's utterly inhuman and yet is very active yeah i think uh, this dates back very to my very very first uh, films we were a group of young people and we teenagers, uh, actually 18, 19 years old, and we all helped each other, eight of us or nine of us. Only two finished their films. One was uh, a friend of mine and the other one was me. And the others failed because of sound problems. And it gave me, and all of a sudden I, I became alert how important sound was. And it was of essence, and it can make a film fail. And out of nine films, seven failed because of sound problems. But it was it was young filmmakers, 18, 19, 20 years old, with, without any formal training. All of us didn't go to film school. Now, you've, you've both mentioned already... Um what other documentaries do differently or have 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 gotten wrong perhaps uh can you both think to to examples of documentaries you were exposed to early on that inspired you that where you watched them and said this this is this is what i want to do this is the sort of documentary i could see myself making your question fundamentally aims uh, beyond me doesn't hit me i always had the feeling i am the inventor of cinema And and I see uh, documentaries where everything is done wrong, didactic, uh, stupid, sensationalistic, uh, understanding documentaries as part uh, of journalism. And I said, get away from that. I only have negative definitions, only the sins I can name, not the virtues. So in, in viewing these documentaries, uh, I, I couldn't help but think of the Divine Comedy. You know, we began, obviously, in the Inferno, and then Fireball is in some ways about a bridge between earth and sky, you know, the Mount of Purgatory. Uh, so, th- I mean, that just leads me to the, the obvious question. Like what What's next? If you were to do another uh, documentary project together, uh, what do you think you might consider? I think life will come up with something fiendish. <laughs> <laughs> back to hell yeah i i will <laughs> we we have at least a trilogy in us i i i feel that and uh i i i've always got a few ideas that are half-baked and uh and when i get get time i i'll, I'll sit down and, and really have a think um ultimately i i would like to move um beyond scientific topics in in my filmmaking um i i'm i'm very interested in in other aspects of human culture um but but i think for me it's it's always about the complexities and uh and i i, I think what one of the things of course that um i've learned so much about through working with verna is is storytelling 
is 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 narrative uh and and i find it's even informing now my scientific writing oddly enough uh i think more in terms of how do i tell this this story uh of this uh finding that i've i've got to uh from some of my own research but whatever it is you shall not be speeding toward the empyrean at incalculable speed <laughs> <laughs> i think you're i mean you're you're, you're right to you know, recognize these these uh, resonances between fireball and into the inferno. I mean, they, these these are geophysical, geological, celestial phenomena: volcanoes, uh, asteroid collisions, meteorites. Uh, but they they have so much more significance for humans in terms of. Um, what we think of our origins, what we think of the the afterlife, uh, our, our ideas of 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 heaven, of the netherworld, of the underworld. These these are very intimately bound with these these um, terrestrial, earthly, uh, subterranean, and celestial empyrean phenomena. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this chat. We certainly enjoyed this particular interview. Uh, it was, it was, I felt like it was unlike any interview we've done before. Yeah, it was like having an audience with a couple of uh, uh, wise and stern kings of the cosmos. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully we didn't come off too starstruck uh, in this one. <laughs> Uh, once again, if you want to check out the film, it is Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, a film by Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer. Uh, it is an Apple original film. It debuts November 13th, 2020, only on Apple TV+. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to get to us uh, rather quickly, you can always go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and that will shoot you over to the iHeart page for our show. You can find all the episodes there as well. And there's also a uh, button you can push for our store. And that'll take you to a place where you can buy some T-shirts, some stickers, etc., with our logo on them, or perhaps a monster or two. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.